All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Philippians chapter 3. This evening I want to continue with the message that I began two weeks ago, entitled The Christian PL Statement. In the first part of this chapter, uh, Paul is giving a personal testimony about how he had to forsake all confidence in his flesh. See, Paul was a preacher of God's grace. And, of course, he is known as the Apostle of Grace. And the main thematic element of Paul's writings is the idea of God's grace. And it seemed that wherever Paul was going and wherever he preached, there, there were just always people that were trying to pervert the pure gospel of grace. There were Jewish Christians, I think some of them probably falsely so-called, who uh, seemed that they had received Christ, but they were insistent that new converts were to come under the uh, Mosaic laws, and they believed that at least partially the old laws, the old covenant laws, were still binding upon Christians, and especially upon Gentile Christians, because they insisted that they must be circumcised, that that was absolutely necessary to their salvation. And, of course, that was against the gospel of grace. It's a mixture of law and grace. And what it does, it just really undermines the real truth of salvation. It's a salvation by right and by custom, by the works of men. Essentially, that's what it is, really. Salvation depended upon man's work rather than purely upon the grace of God. And so to combat that heresy, uh, Paul shows these people that the best efforts of the best men are never enough to earn the type of righteousness that will be acceptable to God. God demands pure perfection. And anything short of that, a person will never be able to go to heaven. You'll never have enough righteousness of your own because God demands pure perfection. And so Paul, in this chapter, began to enumerate all of the superlatives of his life. And he shows that none of those things that he possessed before he knew Christ were of any profit to him at all as far as his salvation. So this is his P&L statement. It's a profit and loss statement. And he finds that everything that he previously thought was gain that all of these things that he thought were surely would surely commend him to God and make him acceptable with God, he says none of those are any good at all. Now, last week we dealt with the negatives on Paul's P&L statement, the, the things that he had to cast aside, and tonight we're going to speak about the positives that he had through Christ. So if you'd stand with me, please, and open your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start reading tonight at verse number 3. Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means 
I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Wednesday night service. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to be here. Just open up our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to take just a moment before we go on in this second part of the message just to talk to you just for a moment to hear about the negative side of Paul's P&L. That's where we began in the last message a couple of weeks ago. And so number one on your listening sheet are assets that deceive. Assets that deceive. Now some of you may be purist. And so you'll pardon me if I mix my terms up a little bit here because, as you know, we're kind of sliding between balance sheets and P&L statements which aren't exactly the same thing. And so, uh, Brother John, wherever you are, forgive me if I mix things up here. Now, you do need to remember, though, that Jesus spoke in parables. And one of the worst things that you can do is take the teaching of a parable and try to press the interpretation of it beyond what was originally intended. So, bear with me as we, as we speak about this tonight. But Paul had some things on the prophet side, but they were really deceptive assets. And so he began to list all of these superlatives of his life, uh, things that he had that were above and beyond all those abilities and qualities of these people that would argue with him. And he says that none of these things that I possess were really profitable. In verse number 4 he said, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Then he goes on to speak about circumcision and how in ceremonies that he was strictly obedient to the law. But he says, that wasn't gain for me, that was loss. Then he speaks of his descent. And he tells us that he was not a proselyte Jew, as many of his uh, detractors were, but he was a pure Jew of natural descent. And he says, that's not gain to me, that's loss. Then he speaks of his tribe. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, and not just a tribe of Israel, but a favored tribe, because this was a tribe from a son that came from Jacob's real love, his favored wife, Rachel. But that wasn't gain, that was loss. Then he spoke about his devotion to his religion and how that he was from the strictest of all Jewish sects. He was raised in rabbinical law. He sat under one of the greatest teachers in Israel, and yet he said, that was not gain to me, that was loss. Then he spoke about the hatred that he had for what he thought were false ways and how he persecuted the church of God and how he really thought that he was defending the honor of God. And he kept all of these laws. He was doing all of these work. He was defending God, but his zeal and his efforts to obey all of God's laws in the best way that he could possibly do, he said, that is not gain to me. All of that is loss. And so he spoke of all of these things that he had confidence in before, and he counted all of those things as nothing, and he says, these are no good for salvation. Now, Paul was certainly above the brightest and the best of all that were in Israel, and certainly he was far better in men's eyes than these very ones that he's arguing against. But none of this he counted as gain to him. He says, I can't count on any goodness of my own. And he says, if there's anybody who thinks that they could get to heaven by being good and doing things, I have to be that man because I've done more than anybody has done. And he says, it just won't work. And he finally comes down and he says, I've counted all of those things but dung. They're just dung. They're refuse in God's eyes. Now, Paul's point here, of course, is to deny that there's any merits in the work of man that ever counts towards righteousness. But here is an argument 
made almost 2,000 years ago, and yet today we still see the same problem. With people that have church over the door and people that have Christian in their name, there are still so many people that think that you can be saved by keeping some kind of sacraments. You can be saved by some kind of thing that you do, being born into a Christian family. Maybe that will help you. Or just being an all-around good person. That'll help you to get into heaven. And you know that is the deception of nearly all the world's religions It all comes down to this, that there is some good in man. And if man would just work out that goodness that's in him, if he'll just do his best, no matter what else he might believe, if he just does his best, that'll be good enough to get him to heaven. And so these people just kept adding up all the deceptive assets. They put them over onto the positive side, and they attempt to balance all the good out with the bad and hope that the good wins out. Now, the only problem with all of that is it's not Paul's theology and it's not God's theology. God's is exactly the opposite. There is no goodness in man. That's what the Scripture says. The Bible says all are desperately evil. They're dead in trespasses and sin. And the only way that a person could ever be made alive is that the grace of a sovereign God should touch that person, bring them to life, give them the ability to repent and believe, and then save that person by his marvelous grace. There's no goodness in anyone that we can place on a scale because the Scripture says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. So Paul adds up all those assets and he says, these things are lost, I can't count them as gain. But then he goes on to something else because there is another accounting. Now the assets that deceive are not the only accounting, that's man's accounting, but there's also God's accounting. And it works exactly the opposite of the way that we think that it ought to work. And Paul had to discover this kind of accounting by faith. So secondly tonight is the accounting that relieves. There's these assets that deceive, and those assets will do nothing more than to bring us under the further condemnation of God. You see, any time that you try to do good things and you endeavor to obtain salvation by good works, the only thing that will ever do for you is heap greater condemnation upon you. And so there has to be something to relieve this burden of the law that we can't keep. So what is it? What, what relieves us of that impossible task of being holy and righteous enough to be acceptable with God? Well, let's examine some of Paul's statements. In verse number 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So here's number one. Here's, here's what lit Paul lists first. Identification by Christ's knowledge. A knowledge in this verse does not mean acquaintance with facts and figures. There are a lot of people who know a lot of things about the Bible. In fact, one of the most dangerous things that you can ever do is to put your hope and your confidence in somebody that has a title either before or after their name simply because they know a lot of facts about the Bible. There are many people that are educated with facts and figures. In fact, some of the worst heretics that you'll find are people that are doctors of theology. They've come out of religious schools. They've come out of seminaries, and they've got a whole lot of education. That's not the kind of knowledge that Paul's speaking of. He's talking here about experimental knowledge of Christ. That means to have an experience, knowing Christ through experience. I've read a lot of works by theologians that I'm confident that they really never had an experience with Christ. And I say that because you can't experience him and come out with false views of salvation, and you can't come out with a false view of the person of Christ. 
Whenever a person denies the cardinal doctrines of God's word, he has not had an experience with Christ. And yet, we find doctors of religion that that deny nearly every essential doctrine that we have in the Bible, and they do it because they've been educated beyond the Bible, or so that they think. Well, Paul experienced Christ And that made him willing to forsake his Pharisaical religion. He put it all behind him just to find out or to know more about this particular person that he hated so much before. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones has an excellent comment about this. I really can't say it any better than he said it, so I'm just going to read you what he said. He comments on verse number 7 concerning things that were lost for Christ. And he says, I sometimes think that the greatest thing he had to lose was this, speaking of Paul. Here was this highly intelligent man, this man who could meet with the Jews at their very best as an equal and even surpass them, and yet he had to spend most of his subsequent life amongst Gentiles, and not only that, but ignorant Gentiles, many of them slaves and serfs who did not understand and did not appreciate his greatness even as a natural man, so that he had to work with his own hands as a tent maker. It seems to me that the greatest test of all was to have to come down to such a level and spend his life with such people. But he gloried in it. He rejoiced in it. He suffered the loss of all things. And he tells us he did it gladly. And why was this true of him? This is the last principle. All that we've been talking about is due to one thing, and that one thing is what Paul describes here as the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is what explains everything else. That is the thing that has mastered him. That is the thing that has changed his outlook and for which he is prepared to give up everything. Now, there is a very good example or an explanation of what the knowledge of Christ really does for a man. The knowledge of Christ does not puff a person up so that he comes to the place that he thinks he knows more than God, that he thinks that he can pick apart the Bible, split it into hairs, and decide this is right, that's not right, and he can change the Bible, he can doubt it because he has some kind of a superior education. Real experience with Christ will not do that. True knowledge of Christ will cause the most educated person in the world, the richest person in the world, the greatest person in the world, to humbly bow himself into the dust, realize who Christ is, realize who he is, and understand that if association and identification with Christ is considered by the educated elite to be just, or causes you to be considered a superstitious moron, that's okay. Because we're going with God and what God says and not with what man says. So real knowledge of Christ is to experience him. It's not just to know about him. The Apostle John wrote, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So to know Christ, that is a true asset. That's the true accounting of God. Then he goes on here, he talks about another thing, and that's justification by Christ's righteousness. We find this in verse number 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. 
Now here is exactly the opposite of what the Judaizers claimed. Now like Paul, before he became a Christian, these uh, Judaizers, they were accounting, they were adding up all of their righteousness, and they thought that these things, in the long run, it would be good enough that God would accept him. Now, that, that's the same thing that we discussed earlier, the same thing that Paul was trying to do in his life. Paul said, I stood out above the, the best of all of them. The ceremonies, the descent, the status, the devotion, all of those things, that's what they were counting on too. But God will not accept that. Now, you see, it's like this. Righteousness has to be looked at as a whole. You can't divide up righteousness into pieces. Righteousness has to be a perfect righteousness. And whenever you take anything that's perfect and you try to divide it up into pieces, you no longer have something that's pure. Righteousness and perfection do not come in degrees. Now, you can take a jeweler and he can uh, look at two diamonds and he can examine them very closely. And he may make a statement. He said, well, the first diamond is not as perfect as the second diamond. Well, that's a statement that really has no meaning because either thing's perfect or it's not perfect. It doesn't have degrees. Just like somebody who's dead can't be less dead or more dead. I mean, when you die, one minute after you die, you're as dead as you'll be if you've been dead a million years. There aren't any degrees of death. And righteousness is just like that. Righteousness is all or none. You know, I was watching a a television program some time ago, and there was a thief that was trying to scale the side of a building. So he threw up a grappling hook on top of a wall. It was attached to a chain, and he started to climb up that chain. But as he was climbing, there was one link in the chain that broke. Well, one link in the chain breaking was catastrophic failure as much as if every single link in the chain broke. And that's what righteousness is like. Now listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. There's nothing short of that. That's what qualifies you to get into heaven. Now, Paul finally understood that, and he realized that you can't reach heaven by your own righteousness because if you could, that would mean that not one single sin could ever be committed. You see, one sin is like the link in the chain. And if you start trying to climb up your own righteousness to get into heaven, and you commit one sin, then you'll fall back to earth because it's just as bad as if the whole thing fell altogether. So Paul had to abandon all of those deceptive assets because he knew enough to know this. Now, he was a smart man, to be sure. He knew enough to know this. As good as he thought that he was, he was not perfect. And when he finally came to the realization that God accepts nothing but pure perfect, pure perfection, that's all he accepts, then he understood that he can't come up any other way than through Jesus Christ. Now, folks, there has to be a chain with an unbreakable link. Unbreakable links, I should say. There, should, there has to be a chain like that, otherwise nobody in here is ever going to get to heaven. And that's exactly what the righteousness of Christ is. It's perfect, and that's the righteousness that God requires. So that is what salvation is all about. Salvation is about being justified by Christ's righteousness. And the way that we receive that righteousness is through faith. And so that's to understand that all of our self-help is futile. But you know, that is the hardest part for people to get to understand. That's the hardest thing for the natural man to get over. A few days ago, I was speaking to someone about salvation, and this person just kept saying to me, well, I'm trying to do a good, be a good person. I'm trying to do the best that I can. 
And so I explained, well, your, your goodness is not going to get you to heaven. None of us can depend upon our own goodness. We have to be totally dependent upon what Christ has done for us. And you know what the next thing that that person said? I'm trying to be a good person. I'm really trying as hard as I can. And you know what it was like? It's like hitting a tennis ball against a brick wall. It just keeps bouncing back at you. And that's the way the natural man is. He cannot accept this. He's convinced he has to do it himself. And that's something that's ingrained in all of us. That's natural to us. And it's so ingrained that we will not give it up until God comes along and he takes that tennis ball and he squeezes it in that little ear, little hole in your ear and smashes it into your brain. That's what he has to do. And you know, that's exactly what God did with Paul. He struck him down on the road to Damascus, and it didn't take Paul two seconds to give up. And so instead of saying, here's what I did, Lord, what did he say? What will you have me to do? And what he would have him to do, what God would have him to do, was to receive Christ by faith. And you'll notice something very peculiar about the story of Paul's conversion. There wasn't any debate going on. There was no argument Paul and Jesus going back and forth about where real righteousness comes from and how are you going to get to heaven. There's no argument. Paul didn't reason this out and Paul didn't give his opinion of what he thought was the right way to get into heaven. And there's no option here. We also notice in Paul's uh, conversion, there's no option there for a decision. God drove it right down into his ears and when God spoke to him, he penetrated his heart. That's God's doing. And whenever people try to reduce salvation to a simple decision-making process, it will never work because we cannot decide right. It's not until God conquers our heart, not until he gives us the ability to repent and believe, will we ever receive Christ's righteousness through faith. And that's what it takes, Christ's righteousness. And when we believe God, God plunges us under, he covers us through and through with Christ's righteousness. But we're not going to accept that. The natural man just won't do it. So God has to change us, and he has to make us so that we're willing to give up all that goodness that we always cling to. And that is exactly what Paul found. It was God's accounting. God counted as righteous his justification through faith in the blood of Christ. So human accounting, it never works in God's system. Now, there's a third thing that Paul brings into this, and this is sanctification by Christ's power. Not only is it impossible to be justified by keeping of commandments, it's also impossible to be sanctified by them. Now, if our desire is to live for Christ, then we could never trust our own abilities to do it. Now, if we go back to this very important statement that Paul makes in chapter 2, here's what you read in verse number 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The ability to live for Christ is not something that we can manufacture. Our salvation in its entirety is complete surrender to God's power. And this is why Paul says we have no confidence in the flesh. And he meant that, that we have no confidence in the flesh for our salvation. We have no confidence in the flesh to keep us saved. And we have no confidence in the flesh to work out our salvation. In Romans he says, For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that will, or perform that which is good, I find not. 
You see, the flesh is no good for operation in the realm of the spirit. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, admittedly, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, his subject matter is not the same thing we're talking about tonight. But the principle still holds the same. The flesh is only good in the realm of the flesh. And when we have received Christ by faith, then when our spirit has been renewed, when we've been born again, then the only way that we can operate in the spiritual realm is through the Spirit. And so that means that our flesh is never going to be able to sanctify us, or never going to be able to, to, to enable us to do anything to cause our sanctification. Now notice what, how Paul relates this to the power of the resurrection is the same, he says, for the power of Christ, as the power of sanctified Christian living. It's in verse number 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, the power of the resurrection, that's a reference to the means by which Jesus was raised from the dead. It was a spiritual power and not a physical power. When Jesus went into the grave, that human body went into the grave. He was as dead as human being, any human being could ever be, as dead as you could possibly be. And so there was no power of the flesh to raise Jesus from the dead. It had to be a spiritual power. And so it was the Holy Spirit operation upon him that raised Jesus from the dead. And that is exactly the same power that operates in the life of a Christian. We operate in the realm of the Spirit in this life by resurrection power. We're sanctified by that power. Keeping commandments will never sanctify us. So we ought not ever to be fooled by anyone who says, well, your sanctification will be achieved by the way that you dress or where you go or who you associate with, how long your hair is and all those kinds of things. Now what sanctification and holiness will do, it will produce the right choices so you do do that. I'm not saying you don't do it. I'm saying that your holiness, your sanctification will produce that in you. You're not going to do it out of your flesh by keeping the command in order to get your holiness. God has to put it there in you. You have to work through that, and that's the power for which you make all these right choices in your life to live for Christ. So these things are fruits of holiness. They're not the cause of our holiness. Now, Paul gladly gave up all this self-generated holiness. He gave up sanctification of his own to rely totally upon the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we see about this. All of these things are external to Paul. He can't list anything that he does as an asset. The assets that he has, that's no good in God's accounting. The only thing that God counts is what God gives. And what God gives is that knowledge, that justification, and that sanctification that we find in Christ. But there's one more piece of it. And this is the element of Paul's hope. What does he hope to achieve? Well, he definitely will achieve something, but he won't do it by anything that he does. So what is this? What will he achieve? The fourth thing is glorification by Christ's resurrection. This is the thrust of his statement in verse number 11. If by any means... I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now that to me seems to be the crushing blow for anyone who seeks salvation by any other means except through Christ. Now let's suppose for just a moment that bare knowledge of facts, that's sufficient for your salvation. And let's suppose that justification does come by our own works. We can do it. Let's suppose 
that we are sanctified by our own power. Now, how are we going to be glorified? All of these other things we do while we're living, they take place while we're living and breathing. But you don't get glorified until you're dead. So how are you going to get glorified? I mean, glorification is also external, just like all of these other things. Now, if we're going to rely on our abilities for all of these other things, and we're trying to get to this place that we want to go, we're trying to achieve this, why are we going to leave this very last piece at the mercy of someone else? That would make sense for us to do that. Now, friend, here's what you need to decide. If you, if you think that you're going to be justified or you're going to be sanctified by your own, on your own, then you better be ready to be glorified on your own. See, God's not going to let you refuse his way in all these other things. Believe in some other kind of sanctification. Believe in some other kind of justification that he has no part in. And then when it's all over with, God's going to do this part for you. Forget that idea altogether. And you'd be foolish to think that God would do it. No, glorification is an external thing, and it happens when we're dead, and God has to do that too, just like he does all the rest of it. Now, we look at verse number 11, and this poses a problem for many people because here Paul uses the word if. He says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, there are people that can read this, and despite everything that Paul has said before this, they like to turn this into a work. And they say what Paul is doing, he's tried all of these methods as a means to be glorified, and he's not quite sure if it's all going to work out in the end. Paul has no such intention. This is not an if of doubt. Now, this means that living this life and attaining to the resurrection of the dead is going to be fraught with the loss of all of these other things. You're going to have to lose all of the things that you thought that would count for something. You've got to get rid of that all. And he also is telling us that all of this is going to be experienced with pain because being conformable, made conformable to the death of Christ is going to involve us in the sufferings of Christ. But the great thing about it is that our final glorification and the promise of our resurrection and that we'll share all the glories of heaven It all comes down to it's all worth what little bit of pain and suffering that we go through in this life. All of that is relatively small compared to what we gain through Jesus Christ. So what we have here is that everything from the beginning to the end is God's work. Paul lists all the assets and there's nothing he can do. Nothing he can contribute anything in any way to his salvation. So his best efforts turn out to be liabilities. And if he relies on those, then what happens is he'll be weighted down with liabilities. But the things that he thought were going to help him are actually things that sink him. They'll put him deeper than the deep blue sea in the bottom of the Marianas Trench if he tries to depend on all of these things. So what he needed is God's accounting. He has to give up on himself. And then all of those burdens... All the burdens of keeping the law and all these other things, the perfection that's necessary to get into heaven, it's all shifted over onto the back of Jesus Christ. And he takes care of it all. He's earned the righteousness through his life and through his death on the cross. He gives us grace to be saved. Now, next lesson in in a couple of weeks or so or whatever it is we get back to, we're going to be talking about more about righteousness in that vein. But let me close with this thought tonight. Make sure that you don't mistakenly 
count losses as profits. In the business world, it would be disastrous to keep adding up products to your list of assets if these are failed products. If you keep adding up things that have failed and you're going to try to show a profit, it's not going to work. And there's one man in Scripture who tried to do that, I mean, specifically in, in this area, and he came to Jesus and he asked the way of eternal life. And Jesus said to him, you have to keep the commandments. You know, a lot of people are perplexed by why Jesus told him to keep commandments when we all know we can't be saved by keeping commandments. But what he was doing was trying to show that young man where keeping commandments would actually lead him when he thought that's exactly what he had done. And so he couldn't see all the way through to Christ's meaning in this. And so he replies, well, I have kept the commandments. But he didn't understand what we've just been talking about, that righteousness is all or nothing. And so he kept adding up all those assets, but he didn't know that there's a little hole at the bottom, and as he keeps stacking them up, they're all falling out the bottom end of it. He never can fill it up enough in order to be righteous with God. Let's don't be like that. Let's don't make the same mistake. Christ is our complete sufficiency. Paul says, count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time we've spent together tonight. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who came into the world to save us from our sins. And Lord, we realize how helpless, how utterly futile our own efforts are. And we just thank you, Lord, that Jesus took care of it all for us. And we can just put all of our hope and confidence in him. Bless us in this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.